0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the February 28, 2023 podcast. It's been roughly six months now since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law. and In today's podcast, we're going to talk about a provision of that legislation that created a new category of property eligible for the Rural Energy Investment Tax Credit or ITC, I'm talking about standalone energy storage. Now the Inflation Reduction Act, and actually, let me take a turn here for a moment. I tried hard not to refer to it as IRA or IRA, as the IRA initialism, IRA acronyms conjure up something different in my mind than a major US energy tax bill. So I will be referring to it as the Inflation Reduction Act, even though that is a bit long. The Inflation Reduction Act included more than $300 billion in clean energy incentives, including extensions of the production tax credit and investment tax credit, the opportunity for direct pay, pay for fundability, or transfer of credits in certain situations. Bonus credits for affordable housing in income communities, as well as the ITC for standalone storage and interconnection property were included. Now, since the passage of the bill, we have been waiting on guidance from the Internal Revenue Service on many of the provisions. The IRS did recently provide the initial guidance for how we'll allocate the bonus renewable energy ITCs for long income communities and on qualifying advanced energy project credits. Now, in the coming months, we will be talking about that guidance on TaskRoute Tuesday. But today, as I said in the intro, we're going to talk about an area in which stakeholders have been able to start embracing revenue. Since there has been no need for significant guidance, now developers can benefit from the ITC on standalone storage. Now, there is good reason that allowing standalone storage to qualify for the ITC was included in the landmark legislation. The United States needs to build 100 plus gigawatts of storage by the year 2030 to meet its climate goals. And as of last October, per the American Clean Energy Power Association, there was only get this three gigawatts built. That's a 97 gigawatt shortfall. Needless to say, there's a lot of storage needed and there are significant sort of benefits to the power grid of additional energy storage. Now, as you likely know, this isn't a part time storage has been eligible for the tax credit, but it is the first time that standalone storage is. Previously, the cost of storage that was connected to solar or wind generation we're eligible for the ITC and obviously still are. But now, storage standing alone is eligible. Significantly, it's not just storage for clean energy, storage for other methods of electricity production are also eligible. And that means that there are opportunities for existing solar developers and newcomers to clean energy to build storage facilities and receive the economic benefit of the 30% tax credit, or, yeah. as we'll discuss later, even up to 50%. My guest today is an expert in this field. It's Rob Bryant, a Novigrad partner in our Dover Ohio office. Rob specializes in clean energy incentives and is currently working with many clients intending to claim investment tax credits on standalone storage. Rob does also work with project finance tax incentives. I should say other project finance tax incentives, including the New Markets Tax Credit, Historic Tax Credit and Opportunity Zones. In today's podcast, We'll talk about how standalone storage is affected by this tax credit and help answer the question as to whether or not standalone storage is right for you. We're going to discuss the factors you should consider in determining whether or not the addition of tax credits to the financial stack will make standalone storage financially feasible. We'll also address how more storage will affect the grid and whether standalone storage works in ways beyond utility scale developments. Think in front of or behind the grid. This is a new area for tax credit financing, and there's a lot to cover. So if you're ready, let's get started. So Rob, welcome back to Tax Credit Tuesday. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be back. So let's start off at the top. And before we dive in, I do want to have you explain to our listeners more broadly the benefits of and need for energy storage as we progress towards being carbon neutral uh, in the 2030s.
1: Sure. So, energy storage is going to be a critical component of our energy grid as we progress more towards a variable production renewable energy mix for how our electricity is produced. Um, I read an article where one publisher called it the linchpin technology that's going to be what's going to hold everything together as we progress towards this this um, carbon neutral mix. And basically, storage doesn't produce power but it has many applications that is necessary for our grid stability and reliability. Um, So for example, load shifting. Um, Renewable energy resources, you know, may need to be curtailed if they're overproducing in a period where the demand is not necessary. Whereas of now, if there's more storage available, that overproduction can be captured with the storage and be used at a later date, say when the sun goes down and the solar array is no longer producing power, that battery is there to be able to provide that power, especially at the night times when that, when that peak demand raises up. So, you know, that's one application. Um, there's frequency regulation, or, or I call it like rapid response, um, to the grid from batteries. So, for example, peaker plants, right? If, if the demand forecast is not what it actually is for that day, and they need to ramp up a peaker plant, you know, that, that ramp up takes time. Now it's still rather quick, but it could be, you know, 20, 30 minutes for a peaker plant to, to meet production. Whereas batteries have like within seconds uh, of rapid response to the grid. So, you know, this is another application where storage, you know, as we grow that area is gonna be extremely helpful for the grid. And then there's also, you know, the longer duration, rolling blackout, battery backup option. Um, they call that kind of like an operating reserve for the grid. So there's a lot of applications for storage and and th- this is this is definitely a need area that we're going to need over the next decade.
0: And I certainly found when we were preparing for the podcast when you mentioned the peaker plants uh and the the uh, lack of a need for as many peaker plants it did make me kind of wonder you know how expensive when you think of the cost of a peaker plant well, how much cost that power that you're generating really is on a per kilowatt basis. And I've got to believe that that power is pretty expensive. When you look at all the investments into the peaker plant, depending on how often you use a peaker plant. So from a cost perspective, that seems like a pretty uh, notable, uh, maybe average across all power is not that notable, but on a per installation basis, it must be pretty notable in terms of uh, lower cost.
1: Absolutely. And that's actually one of the areas that batteries have. It's called peak shaving. You're essentially shaving off the peak of that high priced spike in demand that's necessary. Yeah.
0: So I explained the basics uh, in the intro as now standalone storage is now eligible for the ITC, but perhaps you could expand that for our listeners and maybe share what the storage market, the energy storage market look like before this provision passed and now the eligibility for the tax credit might make storage more feasible in more places.
1: Sure. So you know, storage is not new to the energy sector, like you noted. There's around three to five gigawatts, um, you know, currently in place amongst various technologies, um, you know, pumped hydro, thermo, mechanic. Um, but but the the most one that I'm seeing a lot of activity on now is is the battery, you know, the lithium ion batteries. Um, so it, it's definitely not new, but prior to Inflation Reduction Act, um, to be eligible for the investment tax credit it had to be paired with a renewable energy source um, that claimed the ITC so that really limited the projects to basically solar plus battery um, even wind was difficult because a lot of wind um, you know wind tax credit transactions utilized the production tax credit instead of the investment tax credit so right. it really made it limited um, and the other piece of that is it had to be at least charged 75% of the time by that renewable source to be eligible for the tax credit. Um, and that, that charge factor weighed into what the tax credit was for the facility. So, you know, it would have been a 30% credit on your eligible cost for that facility. But if you only charged it 75% of the time by the, you know, the, the PV panel, you only got 75% of that 30% credit. So, oftentimes in these transactions, you know, to claim the full max amount of credit, these these projects would have inverters that basically limited the the charging of those batteries to the solar system, and it really didn't allow the battery to be fully optimized to what its cap- capabilities really actually are um, for the grid. Got it.
0: So I mentioned uh, in the intro that we would talk about how the tax credit can make you know more store standalone storage. Uh, projects more financially feasible. Obviously, that's the intent of the tax credit. The intent of the tax credit is to generate tax equity to sort of buy down the amount of other financing that you need such that the individual facilities will be financially feasible that aren't aren't feasible now. Uh, Are there certain geographic areas or other ways in which you look at what types of facilities are now more likely to be financially feasible that weren't before the credit?
1: Uh, sure. I, I think you can kind of look at that as, as two ways, right? You can kind of look at it as location and markets, right? I would say, first off, we can talk location. Um, you know, storage comparable to, say, solar takes a significantly lower amount of space to meet the same capacity factor. So, for example, a five megawatt solar farm takes about 35 acres um, of land to, to complete. Whereas if you do a five megawatt Battery energy storage system. It takes about a tenth of that, so maybe around three to four acres. So it really opens up the opportunities for developers to find different site control, um, and most notably urban areas, right? Because you're not putting, you know, five megawatt, ten megawatt solar farms on on seventy acres of land inside urban areas. It's just not available. Um, so you know, it makes it makes storage to be able to go into these smaller areas, closer to urban areas and be really beneficial to the grid in these urban areas that take a lot of demand. Um, so that's the first piece of it. Um, there is an adder we'll talk about a little bit later about Brownfields that I think is another location that I think a lot of storage projects may um, start to look at just because of that adder. Um, but we can kind of dive into that a little bit later. And then as far as markets go, um, you know, you kind of look at this from a business perspective, right? You, you, you. Energy storage has a different revenue mix than, than say a, a solar system that just produces power and enters into you know, a power purchase agreement. Right. Long-term, it's kind of fixed for the most part. Typically, most PPAs are fixed, right? So you, know, you kind of have that locked revenue stream, whereas energy storage kind of has two different streams of revenue. Typically, um, typically they have like a day ahead market. So you know, it's not a long-term contract where they're you know, producing power and providing it. it. It's usually like a bid-in where you're going to buy low, sell high, type into okay. the market on a daily basis. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty with that as we progress towards 2030. There's more storage projects, there's more renewable projects. What's those margins going to look like in 10 years? So, you know, there's risk there with those, um, especially in those market areas where the margins are already thin, right? Um, so that that's that's one of the areas, and then a lot of areas have what's called ancillary revenues where they're, these energy storage products are, are paid revenues for um, providing that operating reserve backup or providing that frequency regulation assistance to the grid. So they they receive these, I call them, like I said, ancillary revenues, but they're not fixed either. Those are typically not known for a 10, 15 year period, how, you know, what those revenues are gonna look like. Um, so there, there definitely is, um, you know, risk in the market areas with these as well.
0: So thank you for uh, that. That's a good point about the predictability of the future revenue streams.
1: That's right.
0: So if I am someone who's involved more generally in clean energy, and you know, maybe I have some experience with solar facilities where I included batteries or standalone storage, and received invested tax credit. When I'm thinking about standalone storage now, uh, what are some of the factors I should be thinking about in terms of whether or not this is a, a business line, if you will, or an area that I be should be pursuing?
1: Right. So, you know, I think with with now having the investment tax credit subsidy there and available, it, it's going to make you know developers rethink some of these projects. Right. So, you know, in those tighter markets that we were talking about. You know, they may not have wanted to get in that market just for the simple fact that they may not have been able to borrow as much against the cost of their, their um, you know, facility. So then they had more equity in the game or skin in the game. And then they had to weigh what they thought those future revenue streams were going to look like and determine whether they wanted to invest in that or maybe go to a more predictable market or a more, you know, heavy margin market. Um, And I think the tax credit really will make them rethink that. And hopefully, I mean, I think that's the intent too, right? Is to get them into those markets and assist with that subsidy. So, you know, that, that's the first thing I was thinking about. And then, you know, if you haven't been in this and you've been in say the solar or wind, um, the other thing to really look for is the battery useful lights um, are significantly shorter than say a solar farm or a wind farm. Um, what I've been typically seeing is about a 20 year useful life, assuming that after about 10 to 13 years, you augment or replace a significant portion of the battery cells within the system, or there's another um, approach or strategy that some developers are using, which is called overbuild. So if you want like a five megawatt capacity, you know, storage system, you'll build seven. So you have extra cells there to assist with the degradation as your cells weaken. Um, So that's the other thing to think about. And it's, it's upfront cost if you overbuild, right? So it's one of those things that weighs into your, your feasibility study on, and if you want to get into this, you know, industry.
0: Now, the kind of the overbuilding was something that I thought about is to the extent that there are facilities so, out there now that, uh, we're moving forward, uh, maybe the design would change because I think I did up front that right. maybe you'd be spending the same amount now, but do that overbuilding, if you will, to avoid those later costs.
1: That's right. Yeah. And you just have to weigh in. You have to kind of consider what do we think the 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 cost of these these batteries are gonna be in ten years. You know, as we've seen with solar panels and everything else, the cost kind of came down. So we think as there's more, you know, lithium ion batteries being produced, maybe that cost goes down. So now do you weigh you weigh the do I overbuild now, get the tax credit, pay the cost that it is now, or do I wait and replace them in 10 years? What's that cost going to be? So it's definitely a a, you know a guess, right? It's it's it's
0: well and and it's not as if that 10 year metric is like at the end of 10 years, there's like
1: a- That's right. That's right.
0: That is an estimate. Uh, And as a solar, you know, you had different uh, experiences and there's initial estimates versus how the production was over time.
1: That's right. Every system's different, right? I mean, it's, you know, what, what, there's like hour duration battery, four hour duration batteries, there's so many different technologies and how you charge them and discharge them, weakens them quicker, slower. So there's so many factors that go into that. So that 10 to 13 year window is definitely, like you said, not a, not a slice rate, (laughs) exactly. what.
0: So So I mentioned that the 30% ITC could be as much as 50% of the costs. So if you could explain to listeners, how you get that extra 50% uh, get up to 50% uh, from 30 to 50%. And then maybe actually let's make this a two part question. If, if I'm looking at 30% ITC, if you just roughly, because okay. you get the ITC, there's depreciation benefits, there's a host of other ways to monetize that 30%. Okay. And maybe you could just throw out a rough range as to if it's 30% uh, sort of qualifying costs, and obviously not all costs are qualifying a transaction. If you could throw out a super wide range as to how much project finance equity can be generated from a 30% credit based upon total project costs, mm-hmm. uh, as a super rough number. It's not the price for credit and all the rest. Cause there's all those pricing questions and all the, the clients can call you directly to talk about in terms of the, mm-hmm. when the rubber really hits the road, but you could just share broadly speaking, the range of total project costs yeah, on the 30% credit, and then, uh, talk about you know, how you get the X, how you can get up to 20% more for to go from a 30% credit to a 50% credit.
1: Certainly, Mike. So first off, the 30% ITC is for projects that are greater than one megawatt AC and um, meet the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements. So that, that that's the first key kicker that you need to make sure that you, you're meeting those requirements to get to 30%. And then if we're talking capital stack, um percentage of what what what's happening there is if you, if you talk about a, a price per credit and get to you know what we think it's going to be so let's just say you have a dollar project i've seen debt financing for these anywhere between 35 and 45 50% really depending upon how you know strong those revenues are that the the lenders willing to underwrite and let's just say you know you can make another 30 to 35% depending upon what you get if you're doing a tax equity structure so now you're up to say I don't know, 65 to 70, 75% range of your project being financed. Whereas pre, you know, IRA and standalone, you were, you were coming up with, you know, up to 60% of that capital yourself. So you can almost say it's kind of cutting it in half of what you're bringing into the transaction um, from your own skin in the game, so to speak, um, from your business perspective and looking at what yields you want to make, uh, you know, on your project. Um, so I think that's... and. Again, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I was using 30 to 35% for the tax credit. That's assuming you do a tax credit transaction and you monetize the depreciation and a little bit of a cash flow from your project. There's also transferability out there where you have the ability to not do a tax credit transaction and just sell it, but you're going to sell it for less than a dollar as the buyer wants to make a return on purchasing the credit. And that spread is still to be determined as this market is still kind of creating itself and I've seen very wide ranges in where that, that credit purchase is gonna be. So, um, you know, know that if you go down that route, it may end up being you know, 24 cents or 24% instead of 35% or something along those lines. So uh, if range. No,
0: just to interject, I would note that when you're doing that transferability, that's because you'd be keeping the depreciation and keeping that extra cash flow and it would be great right. credit. So you can be parceling, eventually parceling out the cash flow, depreciation benefits, and tax credits, which is all the more reason why so many clients are calling you <laughs> to help do all that uh, analysis.
1: That's right, absolutely. But there is a couple kickers here that makes this maybe a little bit of a sweeter of a pot for um, for you know for some developers. There are two adders available for storage projects. Uh, the first adder being up to ten percent domestic content adder. Um, and basically, we're still waiting on some more clarifying guidance, but what the adder would be is you would go from a 30% credit to a 40% credit of your eligible cost. If you use 100% of steel and iron produced in the United States and 40% of the manufactured pro- or manufactured components of your qualified facility also produced in the United States. Now, there's a lot of questions about that 40% manufactured product. I've seen some flow charts put together on how you know, you go from a facility to a component to a material and, and how does that calculation work? So we're we're still waiting on guidance from the IRS and treasury and specifically a calculation that folks can kind of, uh, you know, hone in on to see if it's eligible, but that would get your credit up to 40%. And now you're talking to capital stack and say you, you go out and do tax equity financing 44%. You can finance say 40% with debt. Now you're up to 84% of your capital stack. So It's making your project look even more feasible. Um, Now you would have to kind of compare the cost of your facility. Does that go up a little bit depending upon the product I'm using? So it's not just an exact, I raised it up, you know, 15% because I did this type situation. But um, so there's that um, kind of way. And then there's another adder available for storage, which is the energy community adder which also goes up to a 10% adder for these projects. So you could technically go up to 50% if you meet both adders. And the energy community adder high level is basically brownfield sites, which is what I talked about earlier that I think maybe a a win-win for storage, um, but also communities that had significant employment from fossil fuel energy um, uh, generating facilities um, or a retired coal-fired power plant communities where there's unemployment from this. Um, so, you know, we could go up to 50% now if we meet those and, you know, now you finance it, now you're getting up to say, I'm only putting you 5% or 10% equity in the transaction. Um, so it really might make some projects feasible if you could hit both adders.
0: So that's a great, thanks for that. And I did mention in my intro about it, area, this not being an area where we needed that much guidance, but obviously on the domestic content and these adders, uh, more guidance is needed. Cause as we also discussed with the energy community adder, you know, trying to get some, you know, easy published reference as to what communities are eligible and which ones are not. Uh, so what we've been talking about kind of implied what we've been talking about, and maybe you could expand on this has been focused on utility scale projects. Uh, and I know that many listeners will be wondering what the application for standalone storage is at a smaller level. So maybe you could talk about sort of in front of the grid and behind the grid and how you see the tax credit for standalone storage at a a smaller level.
1: Sure, so yeah, most of this conversation has been about large scale utility scale type storage, right? We were talking hundred gigawatts needs, needs done at the beginning of the podcast here. Um, And essentially that's in front of the meter um storage. That's that's basically power is coming from the grid and going back into the grid um in in front of a in front of a you know a a business utilizing the power. It's it's directly right there with the grid. Um, behind the meter storage is like CNI or or businesses where they would you know put storage on their property and and mainly what I think of with this question is if I was a business and I was thinking, "Do I want to get a generator, or do I want to back up battery?" Yes, what do I do And now that the battery has the ability to get a tax credit with it, um if I have tax liability as a business owner and I can utilize that tax credit, hmm. maybe i maybe I add battery or with transferability, can I find somebody that will buy that credit from me and I can monetize that credit to put you know storage on my property and if I'm a business that's also in one of those areas where I pay on peak and off peak pricing for my electricity and my utility bill, my utility bill has that variability. Maybe I pick battery backup now and I can pull from the grid in those off peak hours and utilize my battery in my production for my company in the on peak hours and not pull from the grid would help lower my utility bills bill. So it kind of acts as a backup and uh um, you know, a a reduction of my operating expenses in my company.
0: No, that makes uh, perfect sense. And being in California and having experienced rolling blackouts in the summer because of uh, fire threats and the rest, uh, it seems like, you know, there are parts of the country where the whole concept of a business uh, having a battery backup, you know, as opposed to a generator will make a lot more sense uh, from a business uh, perspective. So before we wrap up, perhaps you can share some of the issues that developers need to address if they're going to be involved in standalone storage. Obviously you can't provide all the issues and you can't provide all the answers on the ways in which you resolve these issues, but I thought it'd be good. If you could just kind of walk through some of the various issues that clients are calling you, uh, and as part of the modeling that you do, because every one of these transactions obviously has a multi-year financial model. Uh, that's critical to the financial analysis, critical for the various players and uh, involved in the project and the rest. But if you could talk about some of the key uh, issues that need to be addressed. then I'll include your uh, email and contact information in the show notes, so listeners can reach out to you directly uh, to discuss, you know, some of these issues as well as the other ones you don't want to have time to discuss here.
1: Sure. So I would say the first thing we got to discuss is the fact that this subsidy is a tax credit, right? So developers that haven't been in this space before need to realize that either A, they need to have tax liability that they could utilize this credit to offset, or B, I got to be able to monetize it somehow because if not, I'm not getting a refund on it. And disregarding tax exempts direct pay, I don't think we were going to get into that in this podcast. You know, it, It's not refundable to you, so you need to be able to monetize it somehow. Um, so that's like the first question that I would really get into with, with the the new developers into this space in, in the tax credit and tax equity world. And then you know the second piece is then, okay, do we want to do transferability and just sell it, keep my business model the way it is? I don't need to do tax equity partnerships. I can just you know do my project, generate the credit, and sell it on the market and and take cash for it, or like you said, do I wanna to try to monetize some of that depreciation back? Maybe I'm not a tax efficient taxpayer and I'm just building up a bunch of you know net operating losses from the, the accelerated depreciation from all these facilities that I've been doing. Maybe I wanna go out and do a tax equity structure instead of making say 80 cents on the dollar by selling the credit. Maybe I go out and do a tax equity structure and get a dollar five, which then brings more capital into my transaction that I'm coming out of pocket for upfront. But like you said, you kind of have to weigh that because, you know, you're also giving up some of the losses that you can utilize maybe in the future. And you're also giving up some of your cash, you know, piece of the pie, so to speak. So you're not taking all that cash that you were expecting. And I will say, like, what I've been running into with transactions is tax equity and the uncertain and uncontracted revenues, you know, they underwrite those a little bit different. They they, they view those as riskier. Um, so they may want a lo- little bit larger piece of the pie because they may not feel like, all oh, that cash flow is going to be there from uh, from, a you know, uncontracted standpoint. So that's another thing to consider. And, you know, we can assist with running models and doing some upside downside scenarios where you can kind of see what those impacts would look like um, on your returns from your perspective.
0: So thank you for that. And I know there's a lot more that you could talk about there. <laughs> <laughs> So I would encourage the listeners to reach out to you. Uh, I do appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. You've provided a great amount of insight into what listeners need to begin to examine using ITC for standalone storage. And as I've mentioned many times in the course of the podcast, I'll put your email address in the show notes. I just encourage listeners, if you do have questions, please reach out to Rob directly. Uh, And Rob, I ask you to please stick around for the off mic section where I get to ask you some off-topic questions that our listeners will uh, hopefully find your answers helpful. Uh, And then to our listeners, please be sure to tune in to next week's podcast. My guest is going to be Kelly Gorman from our Clark, New Jersey office. Kelly's been a guest before to discuss operating expenses for affordable rental housing properties. In our next week's episode, we're going to talk about recent trends in new housing starts, as well as household formations and how those numbers could affect affordable housing. My column in the March issue of the Novogat Journal of Tax Credits is about this topic. Basically, the supply and demand situation in housing. Kelly and I are gonna dive deeper into the subject, including whether she's seeing any effect uh, in market studies due to the recent surge in new housing starts over the last three years. If you're a apartment developer, property manager, or even investor or syndicator, you'll certainly, be informed who you listen to the podcast. So now we reach our off mic section, right? Have the luxury of asking our guests some off topic questions to get some advice and words of wisdom from them. And the first question I was going to ask you, Rob, and I don't think I've asked you this before is what do you know now that you didn't know at the start of your career at Novogratik that would have been helpful to you then?
1: So that's a great question. Um, You know, overall, I'm very happy with how my career has progressed. Um, And I started with Novogradic right out of college. So this is the experience that I have. Um, But the one thing that I would say I wish I knew that I wish actually all staff and seniors and everybody as they progress in their career knew is just how valuable their contribution is and what they're doing. Um, You know, as a staff, you know, learning what you're doing, asking that why question and Knowing how to do it the second time saves the, you know, supervisor above you maybe an hour of their time that they can now, you know, get into the technicalities of what's going on and maybe save their manager, or their supervisor, an hour of their time. And it just completely snowballs your career if you knew at the beginning of your career just how valuable what you were doing actually is.
0: Great. Thank you for that. It's sort of classic view of, you know, the sooner you're doing the job of the person who you're reporting to, uh, the sooner you get to be that person and the sooner they get to kind of move up as well. So from a career progression perspective, that's great advice. So one of my other favorite questions has to do with time management. Uh, and, you know, I, I try to avoid saying what's your best of anything because best Suddenly, you can have a whole discussion. i what need my best, but you know, give me a a notable time management tip that you uh, follow or wish you could follow, but
1: aren't as good at following.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: Say- so I said earlier, I said this is not a great question for me. Um, I have a couple young kids, so you know, we live basically by the controlled chaos method in my house. Like oh my it, it's it's never what you think it's going to be. So you know, my best tip would be if you have six tasks that you have to get done that day, prioritize them on what you need done first, because you never know when you're going to need to make an audible. You may get uh-huh. To uh-huh. three and something happens and you can't just step right into task four. So, you know, if you're putting off your, your, your most important task to say task five of six, you may not make it there at that time. So just, just, learn how to prioritize and be willing to shift and know that you never typically you know one to six every day it just never seemed to happen that way so that's that's kind of how i operate with my day-to-day
0: That's a good point particularly to like say with the uh, younger children <laughs> uh it's not uh it's not yours to plan then obviously the same thing in the course of a day you know at novogratic it's not as if when you start your day if not incoming, (laughs) day may have to be addressed. Uh, And it's also something that I'm, I myself am constantly, as you mentioned, if I, the six things I gotta do today, I'm always trying to get the balance between what really has to get done today and doing that first, but also, you know, there are certain uh, times of the day that I feel I'm better at certain types of tasks and trying to do those tasks at the times of the day that I'm better at them and trying to try to get that right balance and be mindful of that.
1: Yep. I look at that with review work in the mornings or late at night when you're not getting peppered with emails and messages and phone calls, you can focus on that review work. Uh, that, that Those are my two blocks for yep. getting that type of work done.
0: No, that's right. The high concentration periods. <laughs>
1: that's right. That's right.
0: process the, uh, uh, traffic control time of the day, because <laughs> there's definitely times of the day where I feel like I'm that police officer directing traffic, uh, uh you know, as opposed to being, uh, fo- being able to focus on a, on a, given task. So thank you very much, Rob, for joining me on this Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. I know our guests are appreciative of you joining us and to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic & Company LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast, or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast.  &